You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, please turn to James chapter 1. There was a spoken word poem that was released five years ago that rocked the Christian world. Does anybody remember this? It was entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Does anybody remember seeing this on YouTube? It was, it was a YouTube sensation. I think it's got over 31 million views at this point. Um, the man that wrote it was named Jefferson Bethke, and he was, he was actually invited on some secular news stations to talk about this poem and how it had just gone viral. So many people had watched it, and so many people had loved it, because what it seemed to do is it, it attacked religion, attacked organized religion and false religion, and it uplifted this idea of just Christ, and just the relationship with Christ. And much of what Jefferson Bethke says in the poem rings true for believers. Christianity is not about our political views. It is not about building huge churches or beautiful church buildings. It is not about behavior modification. It is not a facade. It is not just making a claim to truth, but then not having that truth change you at all. It is not hypocritical. It is not self-righteous. It is not all law and no gospel. And that is exactly what this poem says. That, is, that, is, that religion is all of those things and, and Jesus is none of those things. And so it is true to say that Jesus hates the version of religion that is solely focused on man's attempt to earn God's favor. However, the poem says Jesus hates religion. Jesus hated religion. And the question for us is, is that true? Is that a true statement? I would say no. I don't think it is. I think it's true to say Jesus hates false religion. It is true that he hates the religion that is described in the poem. And I, don't, and I think we can all listen to the poem, watch the poem, and, and understand what the author was, was getting at. But it does run the risk of being unclear about what we're saying. Jesus did not hate religion. In fact, Jesus was the founder of Judaism. He himself was a Jew, and he, he was converting Jews to Christianity, ultimately, through the church. So, so, I mean, all of that is religion. Jesus had no problem confronting the religious where they had gone wrong, but he also had no problem in encouraging those who were religious where they were going right. And so Jesus does not hate religion, but he does hate man-made religion. The truth is, Christianity is a religion. And I know we say things often like it's all about a relationship and not a religion, right? And when we say those, I think we know what we mean. That the focus is not on the religious observances. The focus is on the relationship. But the fact is, God set up the church and he set up Christianity. He set up the relationship to be intertwined with and woven into religious observances. Right? And so communion is absolutely a religious observance. And yet we come to communion not just to eat a little wafer and drink a little juice. We come to communion because we want to be in, in closer fellowship with the God that set that up. And this is how he's, he's called us to come to him. And so if we say things like, well, religion is just terrible and, and it's unnecessary and it's not helpful, then what sometimes people can hear is, well, the church is unhelpful. The, the sacraments are unnecessary, the ordinances. 
that baptism and the Lord's Supper, they don't, they don't really have any meaning. They're not valuable. That pastors and church leadership and church structure and programs, that all those things are unimportant and, and not helpful. And that's not the message we want to convey. In our text tonight, we will be given a test of our religion. Because it is abundantly clear from the Bible that there is a great deal of religion that is not pleasing to God. And there is also a religion that is pleasing to God. And so what we're supposed to do in this text is to examine ourselves in light of these three tests that James gives us. He is showing us what Christianity and what Christians ought to be like, what we ought to look like. From James, we learn that there is such thing as useless religion, and there is such thing as an outward expression of a believer's love for Christ that manifests itself in a religion that is transformative. That that our lives are so changed by our relationship with Christ that there is an outward expression, a faithful expression of religion that happens as a result. And so... James chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 27, 26, sorry, in just a moment. I think it's helpful for us as we approach the text to remember that the five verses previous to these two command us in no uncertain terms to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That that is abundantly clear. That James could not be more clear that it is useless for us to come and fill our heads with the Word of God if it's not changing our lives. And if that is the case for you, I would highly recommend you stop filling your head and start just living out what you already know. And so he's so clear on that. And so if we said, okay, James, I get you. I know I'm supposed to be living out the Word, but what do I do? I mean, where do I start? Where do I go from here? James says, well, let me help you with this. I will pack the next two verses full of applicable truth for you to start with. So that's what I want you to see these two verses as. This is the the two verses, if you were to say, doers of the word, what does God want me to do as a believer in Christ? Here's a couple things to start with. Three tests of genuine religion. We'll find the test of conversation, the test of compassion, and the test of cleanliness. James chapter 1, starting at verse 26, says, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. He says, there are those of you who seem to be religious. There are those who seem to have some version of religion, some version of Christianity even, who are not truly Christians. There are those who have outward pretense of religion, but are inwardly, spiritually dead. And that thought alone should terrify us. That means that there is possible, and and the assumption is for James, that there are people that he's writing to that are going to churches and, and involved in Christian things that seem to be religious, That the rest of us look at them and say, man, that person, I would assume, is a Christian. But they're not. Because they seem, but it's not the real case. They're actually deceived. They're self-deceived. And this is the second time self-deception has come up in the last five verses. It is a serious problem. It really is. I, I think it's really important that we honestly assess ourselves 
Have we become deceived? Is there a chance that there's something in our own hearts that we're completely oblivious to? First, we deceive ourselves when we don't do what the word says. When we just learn something and assume because we know it, that means we are it. And that's not the case. The second time here we're deceived is when we deceive ourselves when we act religious but have no control over that smart, small, weirdly shaped muscle in your mouth. Okay? And this, your tongue, it's weird, right? Think of your tongue. I mean, I can, I can control my tongue better than most of you. I touch my nose, right? But most of you can't do that. He's weird. So weird. Saying if you can't control this thing, that's a sign that what you have is a pretense of religion. That what you have is not the genuine article. That you are self-deceived. The word bridle refers to the person who is in leadership over the bridle in the horse's mouth. So you are the bridal leader. And the idea is that your heart has been transformed, it's been changed, and because of the inward transformation of your heart, you are now able to control something that was previously uncontrollable. Because you've been transformed, because you've been changed, because you've been born again. And so if you're not able to control this thing at all, then one must wonder who's in charge of your heart. Because it doesn't seem to be the Spirit of God. It seems to still be your flesh. So this is our first test. Are you able to control your tongue? James is going to hit this idea very hard in chapter 3. I promise it will hurt badly when we get there. So I don't don't want to hurt you too badly tonight. I don't want to hurt too badly tonight. But this is just a little foretaste of what's to come, right? And, And we have the obvious things when we think about controlling our tongue. The blatant lies that are a problem. The prayer meeting gossip. We know, I mean, this this idea of the gossip that happens. We, we all would say, okay, what's, how do, what does it mean to control your tongue? And everybody, well, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't gossip. You shouldn't slander. And like, Wait, th- that's great. That's, those are the obvious things that you ought not do. But how about the overly critical or unhelpfully critical person? person who just finds the, a cause to nitpick on other people all the time. Don't you think that's not controlling your tongue? How about speaking in ways that are designed to build yourself up in others' eyes? You just, you just throw things in here and there that make you look good. Or, in, in the same breath, sometimes we say things that are designed to pull other people down in other people's eyes. Right? I mean, just little things, just, just comments here and there that, that are designed to bring others down. How about the way we say things to those we love most that we would never say to a church member? To just, just, just somebody here at the church that we're you know, friends with, we're church family with, but, but we're not intimately familiar with. Isn't it true that often the, the people that we don't control our tongue in front of is those that we love the most? That somehow we get away with saying things at home that we would never say in a you know, larger group of people? How about that problem, not controlling your tongue? How about speaking vain or empty things and neglecting to speak those words that have the power to build and to heal? I think sometimes we just caught up in useless uses of our tongue. Don't let your tongue off the hook because it has become skilled at dodging the obvious bullets. Right? We know we shouldn't lie. We know we shouldn't use all of this filthy language. We know we shouldn't, you know, this. But what are we doing with our tongue? Are we building up 
is, it, is our speech seasoned with grace? With salt? Grace? You know. The first mark of those who have vain religion is that they cannot control their tongue. And I think the opposite of that is also true. Those who control their tongue demonstrate the effectuality of their religion. They demonstrate that what they have is not just an outward thing. And I think this is really interesting because if James had started with a church attendance, for example, I mean, that's something that people can force themselves to do, right? That's something that, that it doesn't necessarily require a transformed heart to show up at the same time in the same place most weeks. But controlling your tongue does. You can't just force that. Because what's in your heart comes out, right? We know from Christ that the heart and the tongue, they're connected. That the tongue is actually a barometer of your spiritual health. And so he talks about the tongue as being this symbol, this sign of whether we have true religion or not. He continues in verse 27. He says, pure religion, in contrast to this false religion that can't control its tongue, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. If we were to take this verse and tear it out of its context, we might be left with the message of the social gospel, right? That pure religion is what? Well, in this verse, it's devoid of any mention of Christ. It's devoid of any mention of the word of God. It's just to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. And we must recognize, first of all, that this verse comes in a in larger context. In fact, in verse 1, we find that James is introducing himself as a servant of Christ. And so, first of all, there must be this idea of being a servant of Christ involved in all of this. He goes on, and he says he's writing to those who have been born again by the word of truth. So, it's, he's a servant of Christ writing to those who are born again in Christ, through the word of God. He also says later on that he's writing to compel believers who are already called brothers to do the good works that the word of God commands them to do, right? That's the idea of be doers of the word, not hearers only. So in the context of what James is saying, he's saying from a believer to other believers who are brothers in Christ already, who should be obeying the word, this is what your, your faith, your religion, this is how it works itself out in your life. And one of the ways it works itself out is... Visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to do that? If we are believers and we should do those things, do we just show up at their door you know, once a week, once a month? What, what does it mean to visit someone? And I think, again, it's helpful to go to the New Testament and see other times that this word is used. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, There will be a day when the king calls his servants, and he blesses them for all the good works that they did for him. And this is Christ saying this, and, and, and the disciples are so confused because he says in Matthew 25, verse 35, For when I hungered, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the disciples, so confused, said, when did we, Lord, when do we do these things for you? I mean, I, thank you for praising us and for saying we did something good, but I don't remember this happening. And Jesus makes it clear that when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And here the word used for what you were to do for the sick was to visit them. And it comes directly after clothing the naked, taking in the stranger, giving 
water or a drink to the thirsty, giving food to the hungry. They're all actions that are taking place. You're all taking the need that is there and meeting it. So visiting the sick would be in some way providing relief or aid to the sick. Again, in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zacharias prays. And his prayer is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. I don't think the idea is just like God knocked on the door and, and you know, stopped in for a quick visit. It is he helped. He provided the relief and redemption for his people. God showed up. I love Pastor's message a couple weeks back or, that just God shows up in our situation, whatever that may be. But God doesn't show up just to be there, just to observe. He shows up to help us, to provide the relief and the aid we need. And so here we are, are told that visiting, that providing relief and aid to the fatherless and the widows is an outworking of true inward faith, that it is pure religion in God's eyes, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Now, for them, this would be before the time of social programs. And in the very early church, do you remember what the very first problem the church encountered was? I mean, other than the persecution of people trying to kill them and stuff? The first problem within the church... You remember what it was? The feeding of the widows, right? Now, what's interesting about that is not that there was no widows being fed. The problem was that there was a discrepancy in how the Greek-speaking widows were being fed compared to how the Hebrew-speaking widows were being fed. And so there was already built into the first early church structure, right at the very beginning, some type of social program, you want to call it that, some type of of aid or relief or help to the believers in that church who were widows, who were unable to provide those things for themselves. And they were, I mean, they were literally unable to eat without help because they didn't have food. And so the first problem within the church is to help remedy and, and better this program that was to feed widows. And that's exactly what they did. And so this is consistent with what the Bible teaches about what the church is supposed to be doing. And it begins here within the church, right? I mean, it's crazy to think we'd have people in our church that are struggling with desperately with needs that can be easily met by other believers in this church. That should never be the case. It shouldn't happen. So it begins here in the church, but I think it also works itself out, right? This is how we show the love of Christ to the world around us. So... Before we move past this test, okay, we've got this. The test number two is the test of compassion, right? We have your conversation and how you speak. You have compassion, okay? How you are treating those who are in greatest need. But why do you think it is so important that it is included as one of the key qualities in pure religion, in true religion? Why is that? I think, first of all, because it mimics the character of God the Father. And this is such a wonderful thing about our God. Psalm 68.4 says, Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. This picture here uh, is of this God who is powerful and mighty, and he's, he's the king, and he's glorious, and he's awesome. Like, like this massive, beautiful picture of who God is. In the very next sentence, a father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows, 
is God whole, in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary, those who are lonely and by themselves, in families. He brings out those which are bound with chains. That is who God is, right? God is the one who cares in a very special way for those who nobody else cares about. For those who are most vulnerable among us. I mean, he has this desire to take care of the fatherless and widows. That's why there's this command here. If it was all about building the church and getting money and, and trying to as fast as possible, there are certain groups of people that would be left out of that endeavor. Do you know why? Because they're probably not offering much toward it. But it's not a company, right? In a company, you want to cut out the people who are dead weight. And what he's saying here is go after those people. Find the ones that can't give anything back. Find the ones who are in desperate need and require sacrifice. Visit them. They provide relief for them. In fact, God's extension of salvation to the Gentiles demonstrates his heart to adopt the fatherless. You know what that means? That you are an adopted child of God. And and so in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For we have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Because God has adopted us, we call him Father. And now our Father, and it's amazing that even in this verse, he uses the word God, the Father, just to, to bring it clear that this is who God is already. He's this Father of the fatherless and the widows. That he's calling his children now to go, his adopted children, to go now take care of the fatherless and widows. I think it is a wonderful thing that Christians, far above our secular counterparts, are actively helping those who are fatherless and those who are widows in our society. I'm not, in this case, I'm not trying to bash the church. I think the church, in many ways, is doing good work in this area. There's There's always room to improve. And if we take something from this, I want to say, we should be doing this. Hopefully, you're already doing a little bit. Maybe there's an area where you can check out your religion and say, is there any way that I am trying to help those who can offer me nothing? Is there any way that I'm sacrificing for those who are most vulnerable? Because that is a mark of true religion. There should be some compassion inside of you that drives you to do something. It, is, it mimics a character of God, and it is an act of true love. And, and this is an amazing thing, because we don't even realize it, but self-love motivates so many of our actions. Even sometimes our actions toward those that we, that we love, that we say we love, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that we love. We love them because they love us. We love them because, you know, there's, there's some kind of beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship that we have. And this is an opportunity to show love where it is abundantly clear that you get nothing. I mean, there's, there's nothing coming back, right? It's an act of true, sacrificial agape love. I don't think James means here to put barriers on who we help. I don't think he's saying, well, take care of the fatherless and the widows, and then that's that's it. I think it's just kind of a picture, a window into those who are helpless, who need our help. And so we could add to this those who are drug addicted, those who are dealing with AIDS, those who are sick, those who are depressed, those who are struggling with sin, those who are poor. I mean, we could add to this list many people that, that are vulnerable, that are weak, that are struggling in our society. I think it's up to believers to go after them, okay, to care for them, to visit them, to provide some relief. 
That is the third test, the test of compassion. The final test is the test of cleanliness. He goes on in verse 27, and he says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The word unspotted is unblemished or unspoiled. And I like here how it doesn't say to be unspotted in the world. It says to keep yourself unspotted. And that word keep, it's an important word. It means to hold fast or to guard or to watch. In other words, you are in a world that will be spotting you, right? That will be spoiling you in some way. And if you're not careful, you can't just be this. It's just not this automatically, okay, yeah, I got it now. This is something that you gotta, you got to do some work at, right? you got to be guarding and keeping it. And, and hey, like, is this something that might allow the world to get into my way of thinking? And it, it might make me lust. It might make me sin. It might tempt me. It might make me struggle. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that it's a good idea to like, just go after temptation, but then be strong when we meet it, right? Now, temptation will come in our lives, but the Bible's advice for us is to flee, to avoid, to stay away from. Don't put yourself in that situation. It's not like a muscle that gets stronger. Right? This is, the idea here is get away from it. And so we are here to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. It is a continual action. It means we are dead to the rudiments of the world. Okay? Those things don't have control over us anymore, and we should not let them. It means we are to be lights in a dying world. And a light requires some kind of difference, right? I mean, there might be some places that are dark that don't want light. And it's a bad idea if you just try and dim your light to the point where they might not notice your light. It's not helpful. Okay? But that's what we do sometimes. We think, oh, i got to fit in. i got to be like them. You know, I gotta... Well, maybe not. Sometimes I think we come across with this idea that, hey, we're just the same. I'm, I'm just like you. And I get why we do that, because we want people to not feel like we think we're better than them. But if they understand, if we're coming across the way we ought to, that there is a humility in Christianity, that it's not that we're, we are different. Well, we're not different because we're better. We're different because of what God has done in us. And so there should be a difference. And I, I, I don't want to, I've been in a, a lot of churches where when you said a Christian ought to be different from the world, what that meant for everyone who was listening was, well, that means the girls always wear skirts. That means you never go to the movie theater. That means nobody ever has a drink of, of alcohol. That means, and you have these lists of like 10 things that just kind of define what our independent Baptist circle looks like. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, those things are necessarily bad, but that, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. I don't think he's getting at like, have this checklist that you can say you look like this person. I think what he's getting at is maybe more like Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus explains what kingdom living is. And that it's going the extra mile, that it's, that it's being different, that it's not, not pursuing and loving all of the things that the world loves. Do you know it's, it's easy to put on a skirt and still love all the things that the world loves? Right? It's easy to show up at church and still love all the things. We've got to be really careful that we're not just checking off a list and thinking we've kept this. It is the duty of the Christian to keep against the vices of the world that will negate our witness of Christ. And if we allow the world to so stain us that we no longer have a witness of Christ in our lives, what will we do when we stand before the king? What will we do when we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ? He says, well, what did you do with what you were given? 
There's no difference. Because I was a Christian in my neighborhood, nobody came to Christ. Nobody was even convicted to come to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. We say amen to that, and we should. It is all grace that we're saved. But verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. In Christ, don't miss that, it's not apart from Christ, it's now in Christ, we should be doing good works. There should, there should be a difference. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There is a difference, right? Grace teaches us that we should change. Okay? We don't merit grace, but because of grace, we are now trying to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. 1 Peter 1.16, it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And can I tell you, on this point, we could quote verse after verse after verse after verse after verse that tell believers that they ought to be different, that they, they ought to be killing the sin in their life and trying to pursue holiness. Because that's who God is. Right? We're supposed to be like our Father. Why? Why is this so important? Why is this a mark of true religion? Because true religion transforms from the inside out. It doesn't just reform. It's not just something we tack on. Because if we really have the faith of Jesus Christ, it impacts every aspect of our lives. And we ought to be unspotted from the world. If you've been following along tonight, you might regard this passage as a tall task. Imagine if all God said you had to do for the rest of your life was control your tongue, take care of all those who you come across who are vulnerable and weak, and, and make sure you visit them, take, you know, provide help to them, and just make sure you're never being spoiled or spotted by the world. Could you do it? For the rest of your life, you just three things. Because we're, t- we're talking two verses here. Two verses out of a Bible. Could you do it? I don't think so. If it was up to us, those two things, I mean, or three things, I feel like it seems pretty simple, and yet we're stuck in the mud, right? We're not going to make any traction by ourselves. You would be right if you thought it was difficult. It is impossible for any person to do these things on their own. But remember what came before it. James is a servant of God. You were born again by the word of God, and now, as believers who are born again, who are, who are spirit-filled, you've been called to be different. And that changes things. Because that means that the, that the power, the impetus, the motivation, it's not all in you, right? That it, it, there is part of it that's on you. Okay, you need to step out in faith. You need to, to put some effort forth. You need to try these things. You need to think about these things. You need to be purposeful and intentional about applying the word of God. Those, all those things are true. But when you do that, know that the spirit of God that resides in you will help you, will empower you. That, that what's impossible by yourselves is possible with Christ, with the spirit of God. In chapter 2, verse 1, James begins that chapter, and he talks about that this is how to have the faith of Christ. And I really think that that's kind of the key to the whole book. James is teaching us 
how to live out our faith. And that's exactly what this is. If you have faith, here's a couple tests. Here's a, a few religious signs that should be evident in your life. One, what's your conversation like? Do you control your tongue? Two, do you have compassion on those who are most vulnerable? And three, cleanliness, holiness, right? Are you trying to keep yourself unspotted from the world? I think it is a call for us to examine our religion. We can come to church, we can read our Bible, we can pray, we can fellowship with believers, all those things are good. But when defining true religion, it begins with conversation, compassion, and cleanliness. And so we should take the time to examine our hearts and our lives and see if we're living out the faith that we possess.